Hello, and welcome to NER Out Loud. I'm Yardena Carmi, a summer intern at the New England Review. In this episode, you'll hear Michael McGriff reading from Questions for the Interrogation, his poem excerpted in the spring 2021 issue of NER, volume 42, number one. The piece is a lush depiction of rural Oregon as if seen in a dream. Mike also joined me for a short conversation about the poem and its influences and inspirations, as well as his work translating the Swedish poet Tomas Tronströmer. After his reading, listen on for our discussion about playing with memory, the limits of language, and what gets lost and gained in translation. Michael McGriff is an author, editor, and translator. He was born and raised in Coos Bay, Oregon, and studied creative writing at the University of Oregon, the Missioner Center for Writers, and Stanford University. His books include the recently published Eternal Sentences from University of Arkansas Press, which won the Miller-Williams Poetry Prize. In addition to serving as a member of the creative writing faculty at the University of Idaho, he works as poetry editor at the Northwest Review. Here he is reading from Questions for the Interrogation. This is Michael McGriff reading an excerpt from Questions for the Interrogation. Was that the sound of my brother getting arrested? Or was it the moon collecting its debts from the Jimson weed? Perhaps it was the surf throwing itself into the jetty, failing to strike a blue spark. Lovely ghost, is that you at the end of the driveway, trying to convince the young deputy that a set of brass knuckles is only a paperweight? Or have I fallen asleep with the windows open, overhearing the thorn apples swap stories as the ocean shuffles its eternal deck of black cards in the last corner of summer? Shoveling this manure, why do I feel suddenly related to half the phone book? How is the fresh paint on the black hinge related to the crows stripping the tree of its cherries? What is a parabola, if not the arrogance of symmetry? And why do the cut halves of a sour apple spin in opposite directions on the butcher's block? Was that an owl or bicycle thieves projected onto the side of our barn? Was that the back door or an old record hissing beyond its final track? Or was that the crunching of gravel just past the end of the pavement. Does the common rat support organized labor? Is the smoke hidden inside a box knot different than the smoke in a square knot? Do you remember how we drove to town to watch our father buy red wing boots with his first paycheck from the mill? How many rivers will refuse to vote in the primaries? Did the runoff from the upstream chrome plant Turn the ferns orange as an eyelid in the October moonlight. And now, a short conversation with Mike about this piece and some of his other work. Hello, Mike. Thank you so much for joining me over Zoom for this interview. Thanks for having me. Nice to be here. 
This summer, I think, has been really interesting for a lot of people since we're all coming out of relative isolation. How has that been treating you? Oh, um, I think that I have lost all of my people skills. Uh, <laughs> I keep forgetting that I can actually put on a mask and go meet friends and, and whatnot. So it's been it's actually been strange, but but good. I'm I, like everyone else. I'm I think the Zoom fatigue is caught up with me and uh, I'm doing absolutely nothing, which is strange for me. Usually I get a lot of writing done in the summer. So uh, mm-hmm. but no complaints. I'm happy to be vaccinated and back in the world. Glad to hear it. <laughs> I'd love to ask you some questions about your piece from Questions for the Interrogation, which was published in NER earlier this year and is part of a larger work, correct? Yeah, it's a book manuscript that I finished, and it's one long poem, and each section uses the question for every sentence. So every sentence is a single question. So cool. What does working on a long-form project look like for you? Where and when does the writing happen? You know, every time I've tried to write a long-form piece, it's never worked out, or it's been really stale and clunky. And with this project... I can call it that. It just kind of came out of my own reading. I was reading um, the Chilean poet Pablo Neruda's book, The Book of Questions, which is one of the last things he wrote before he died. And, you know, my book is basically an homage to his in a way. It's, it's all questions as well. And so I just started writing little response pieces as I was reading his book again for the, the millionth time. And I just kept going and I just kind of followed an impulse and it was more, I don't know, fun is the right word, but it was just my own, my own curiosity kept the book happening and I just kept following it and it turned into a completed book manuscript over the course of a few months. So it was a quick, a quick book for me, unlike everything else that I tried to write. With your manuscript, who's being interrogated? What's the framing subject matter? I think that title is a little strange. You know, I think the obvious answer is that it's a self-interrogation. You know, these are the questions for the self. But the book doesn't really unfold that way. It's it's questions for everything, for the world, for the rhetorical situation of the voice and the piece. To answer your question, like, strangely, you know, I started writing this book and wrote it maybe two years ago, two or three years ago, when the political climate was different in the country. And I was just really thinking about, I don't know, the the bleakness of our future as a country. And I was just imagining all those poor kids at the border caged up and the possibility for anyone to be in a position where they were going to be interrogated. Mm -hmm. So that was sort of just on the strange, aloof back burner of my brain. And it sort of wormed its way into the title of that book. So I think that's a quirky writer's answer, but a real one. It's just all the stuff of your life kind of gets into these works. But but I like thinking about, you know, often you're like here in journalism class or a creative writing class, like don't ask a question, just talk about the answers, you know, talk about what you know or how to know it, be, be epistemological. But I love that in Neruda, he just only asks questions and they're not, none of them can be answered. So I like that as a, as a sort of, I like that sense of unknowing, if that makes sense. And I think, to me, at least writing in a book of unknowing was a little political in a time where everyone seemed very certain of what was right and wrong and who should be 
punished or celebrated and discriminated against or elected. So I, I like I like a book of unknowing or mystery or self mystery, however you want, might want to think about it. Sorry, that was a very wandering answer. But, that was uh, great. <laughs> but that's yeah. the one I have. <laughs> as a reader, I really enjoyed the questions as a structure. I had no idea that it was a nod to Neruda. So that's super cool background information to have. I was also wondering, how did you make decisions like writing the whole piece in couplets? Um, that was my, and again, just my echo of Neruda. He has these wonderful couplets. And in, in the astonishing thing about his book is that in the Spanish, you know, his lines are almost always the same length. And and so his his sentences are all the same length. And he works in these couplets. So he has a super um, self-regulated very constrained form. And I, I couldn't achieve that, but I, I tried to get as close to that as possible. And it was so fun to put those extra layers of restriction on my own work because you have to get inventive and move in ways you might not normally. So I really like that. And I'm not a formal writer, but I just sort of followed that curiosity. And it was, I could see into the matrix. I can see why people fall in love with writing sonnets or you know, getting good at Twitter or anything that has like a restriction on it, or you're you're working in the confines of sort of set parameters. There's something there's something freeing about it, strangely, which I wasn't expecting to happen. How do you excerpt a longer piece for publication in a issue like NER? Oh well, that that is a good question. The answer is that um, you all have great editors who've made those decisions for me. So. You know, I sent in all the pages and then they picked what they thought would work. That was really fun. And I have to say that is a rarer and more rarefied air these days where you get that kind of reciprocal relationship. I love that about editors. I love editors that have opinions and heavy hands. I think publishing in journals is really fun for that reason. And I love the collaborative nature of journal publishing. I think of it as like a petri dish where, you know, your work can go and kind of get translated by an editor. And then you can sit back and look at it and decide for yourself later as an author if that's something you want to keep to or lean, lean against in a way. I love that perspective. And I had no idea that that happened on NER's end. How long is your complete manuscript? It's, I think, 55 sections of one poem and each one is about a page so it's like a 50 55 page poem so well for me at least from the excerpts i've read the poem really creates a portrait of somewhere that the speaker seems to have grown up with so many nostalgic and bittersweet memories occasionally dark in tone but also really like sensory and also definitely funny in some spots. I was wondering, how did you approach the contrast between images that are very firmly rooted in reality and place and more surreal concepts? Like you have this line about Rivers refusing to vote in the primaries. Right. That really gets at the heart of a couple of things. One, you know, I'm a pretty myopic writer. I'm, I write about my hometown um, not by choice, really, but it's just the stuff I end up writing about. And, and those images from that place just permeate the work. I grew up in a logging town in Southern Oregon, and my family's lived there for several generations. And I you know, lived the first 21 years of my life there. And 
you know, it's kind of where my imagination was formed. It's where I started reading poetry and thinking mm-hmm. about art and expression. So all that that image bank is kind of just built into my bloodstream or something. But the form itself, the questions really make you have to reinvent yourself because you can start repeating yourself almost instantly with that kind of restriction. And I love making images. And so one of the things that I, I found to be most delightful was just trying to reinvent the way I saw myself as a writer or the way I used images. You know, I tend to be pretty predictable. I mean, I like big lists. I like some surrealism, some story, some family lore, you know, sort of regional mythology or self-mythology. And, you know, I have a little formula, I think, like all writers do. I have a little default setting. But with this sort of syntactical restriction, I found that I had to I couldn't rely on those arcs and those moves that I was used to making. And how how many ways can you ask a question anew? <laughs> you know, was the question I had to ask myself when I was writing the book. And Neruda really has an answer for that. He's so wildly inventive in his book. And the more questions you write, the stranger you have to get in a way to keep things interesting or the more surprising or, or you just have to look at yourself from all these different angles or look at anything from all all the different angles and those are angles that you haven't haven't discovered before i found to keep going you know you write two or three of these and then fine but you write 10 or 20 and you start to see how you're relying on old tricks and and those things ended up being edited out of the book so your question is a good one uh there's something about the challenge of it that kept me excited to see what i could do in a way there are so many great details here that, again, just build towards such a strong sense of home and so many that, as a reader, I feel like I can see here. And then so many that I also, I don't know if this is a fair question, but I wonder, did that actually happen? Like, did bicycle thieves ever get projected onto the side of a barn? I'm going to give you a cheating writerly answer and and say, yeah, it really happened emotionally uh, or spiritually, but literally. Um, yes and no. I think that that whole manuscript is as a mix of things from my life as they happened, you know, documentary fact and composite characters. You know, I'm talking about my brother often that I don't have a biological brother. I have lots of close male friends and family members and friends of friends that I sort of amalgamate into these for me sort of rural archetypes. So, I mean, in court, I would have to say, no, that didn't happen. Um, but in art court, I'd say, yes, of course that really happened. But no, no one ever, no one ever got the, uh, you know, 75 millimeter projector and mm-hmm. <laughs> did, did a screening of bicycle thieves in uh, rural Southern Oregon. I appreciate the answer and your honesty. <laughs> I think that also speaks to, I mean, when writing about memory, every time you remember something, it becomes a bit less real, right? You can never oh, fully recreate something. That's right. And yeah, you know, I've always grown weary or bored a little bit with my earlier self that believed that writing was about being a witness to the facts as they unfolded, maybe like a good journalist would. I remember when I was an undergrad reading a great interview by poet Philip Levine, who said that his world kind of cracked open for himself as a writer when he finally 
realized that he couldn't tell the truth about the past until he invented its characters. And I was shocked because I, his art is so good that I always assumed he was writing things as they happened when he talked about family members and things that happened in factories that he writes about and particular events and riots in Detroit and these sorts of things. You know, he names names. It's so specific. It just creates this real world that you can live in. And what I realized sort of later on in my early attempts at being a writer was that, you know, your job is to create a spell as a writer and to make things feel real. But your job isn't to to list facts. That's a different field. I think poets often are assumed to be only talking about facts because they write often in lyric poetry in the first person. It's a it's a hugely seductive point of view to write from. You know, I do this, I do that. And I love that spell that it casts. It's so intimate and so believable. And of course, we know this from fiction. We never assume that fiction is autobiographical, but we always assume that poetry is for, for some reason. I think it's the intimacy of it, the space of it, the, the condensed nature of it. So that was a breakthrough for me. But I think your question is really good and, and true. I think memory is just, we know this from telling stories. You, you know, you, you tell a story about that crazy time you did some crazy thing and almost got caught. And every time you tell it, it gets a little crazier. <laughs> You know, there are more cops involved and it's a little more daring and you're a bit of a larger hero or anti-hero in the, the story. And, and that's just the way we live. And I like leaning into that a bit. Thank you. Yeah, that's a beautiful answer on subjectivity. And I love that within the framework of this piece is an interrogation, which hypothetically is supposed to be getting closer and closer to the truth as it goes on. Right. It has been proved a million times over that, of course, interrogations don't work. You know, you get the answer you want, not the one that's true. And so there's just this, there's a fictive relationship between questions and answers and who's in power. And I, I love that as a setup for thinking about the self. You mm -hmm. ask yourself all these rhetorical questions, like what are, what are the answers going to be and will they be reliable and, and why and, and what does it matter? And I kind of like the pressure that puts on the book in a way. Yeah. Well, I wanted to ask you a bit about some of your other work. I read on your website that in addition to writing poetry and stories and essays, you're also a translator. Something I've personally always been curious about is how much of a translated work reflects the translator versus the author of the original text? I think it is, oh, I don't think there's such a thing as a good translation now that I've done it. Um, I used to. I used to say to myself, well, so-and-so, I translate the Swedish poet Tomas Tronströmer, and I used to think like, well, so-and-so's translations are garbage, and so-and-so's translations only reflect him or herself, and so-and-so's translations are the best. And the first thing you realize as a translator is that language is culture and the deep subjective state of the artist. and those things don't translate. Like if language is culture, you can't translate that into another language. Like it is the thing that it is. So you have to come up with these proxies and slippery mirrors and shadows of what you, the translator, find to be the core truth or meaning or value or however you want to think of it for the original text. So I was, I began to admire all of these translators whose 
translations of Tronströmer I had previously thought were garbage because I could see the decisions they had made where they picked, you know, they, I think of the Scottish translator, Robin Fulton, who, you know, I always considered to have a sort of tone deaf ear when he translated Tronströmer's work, but reading his translations were extremely helpful for me when I was working on my own because I could see how he constantly relied on, he wanted to get like the syllabic exactness right. He wanted to get a transliteral text and valued that over, say, the explosiveness of an image. And so personally, as an artist, that's what I love. I love the big explosive image. I love the strangeness, the surreality. But what I had formerly dismissed as being lazy or tone deaf, I re-evaluated as being quite brilliant, even though it wasn't my style. So yeah, I think translation is impossible, but it's necessary. It's what I fell in love with when I fell in love with writing was the Spanish language poets and Latin American poets and poets from Spain. And, you know, if it weren't for those translators, I'd never be a poet. So the value, regardless of how quote unquote good the translations are, I think are immeasurable. So it's really interesting. I, I love thinking about it. It's, it also has taught me the most about writing and about my own poetry and what I actually value and, and why. It's, yeah, it's really, really interesting. I hope you can follow that along with your own German studies at some point. It's really fun. I would highly recommend it because it's so impossible and it, it bucks against that memorizing vocabulary and learning the subjunctive, you know, all important, but there's all these uh, deep mystical factors about language and culture that one can never know as an outsider, but you can get closer and closer to through these strange avenues. It's fun. Hopefully one day. I'm pretty early in my German career. We actually just this past semester read our first novel in German. It was kind of a cheesy detective mystery, but it was very powerful because you read in another language and in a way it's like these are the sounds of someone else's thoughts. Yep. Yeah, you I mean it makes you at least for me. It makes me understand my own contemporary English language writers more deeply because I see how people lean into these things. We might call it style or voice or whatever. And it's the only way to make art. You know, I'll confess or put an asterisk on my own work. You know, I'm not a fluent Swedish speaker. I work with um, native speakers and rely on their patience and, and, and help. I mean, my Swedish is okay, um, reading, but I'm really, you know, when people ask if I speak Swedish, I'd say, no, but I do speak Tranströmer. Like, my vocabulary is completely relegated to his work. <laughs> I'd be really lousy if left on my own to navigate Sweden, <laughs> you know? And, and that project, you know, just, I was a graduate student and I started doing it because I loved his work in English so much. And I convinced a friend of mine who's a Swede to do the transliteral word for word. And then I would go in and see if I could understand how that could be morphed into what I would consider to be an English poem. It was really a collaborative and flawed process that I, I really love. That's fascinating. And I guess we are always translating our own experiences or someone else's experiences, whether it's from Sweden or Oregon. Mm -hmm. I think so. I mean, that's the wonderful thing about language is its limits. If we could literally, if we had a machine that could just clarify and enunciate 
all of our deepest, most nuanced thoughts onto the page. That would just be wonderful, but we don't. We have language with its limited alphabets and its quirky vernaculars and its regional flares and and all this stuff. And it, it's such a limit, but that limit, I think, is where all the invention has to come from. It's beautiful. Well, I think that's all I have for you today. Thank you so much for the beautiful reading of questions for the interrogation that you recorded for us and for taking the time today to chat with me. It was really a pleasure. My pleasure. Thank you so much. It was really, really fun to talk to you. I'd like to give a huge thank you again to Michael McGriff for recording his work for us and sitting down to discuss his book-length poem, Questions for the Interrogation, an excerpt of which was published in NER Volume 42, Number 1. This episode of the NER Out Loud podcast was edited and produced by me, Yardena Carmi, an English and German major in Middlebury College's Class of 2023 and summer intern here at the New England Review, along with Becca Amon, who supported and gave feedback on every step of making this episode. The NER Out Loud podcast is produced by the New England Review in association with Middlebury College. Our original theme music is by Thomas Wentworth. All other music was provided by Blue Dot Sessions. You can read or hear more at nereview.com, as well as purchase print or digital editions of recent volumes. If you want to stay updated, subscribe to our podcast, sign up for our email list, or follow us on Twitter. Thank you for listening.